Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. David Benzikin has been working to take down the factory farming system for the majority of his career. Starting off in the nonprofit space, working for animal protection groups like Farm Sanctuary, David discovered that he could make an even bigger impact for animals by helping companies develop and market plant-based alternatives to meat and other products. Since founding Plant-Based Solutions, a strategic brand management and marketing agency in 2012, David has helped many plant-based companies navigate the road to success. But he doesn't stop at advising other businesses in the plant-based food world. He is also the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods, an exciting new company that makes a sushi-ready alternative to raw tuna using tomatoes. In my conversation with David, he shares his own story as well as some of the key things he's learned from watching several food companies launch plant-based products. We talk about why the world needs a plant-based alternative to fish and then get into a range of issues from the importance of mission, the pros and cons of big food entering the natural food space through acquisitions, as well as what a sustainable and humane food system will look like and how we can get there. From shepherding new plant-based companies to starting his own, David has seen every facet of this developing industry and his knowledge shines through in this interview. If you are even remotely curious about how one can balance profit and purpose while aiming for a bold, world-changing vision for our food system, keep listening. David Benzikin, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I was very excited to talk to you today because uh, we've chatted a bunch of times. Um, and we met recently again about a month ago. And um, your story and the stuff that you've been doing since Plan-Based Solutions um, is sort of well known now within the space but it is ever evolving. And I think what's also interesting is everything you did prior to that. Um, and most importantly, what you're still going to do, which, so we're going to get into all of that today. Um, but I want to start off with, uh, your background briefly, um, and talk about your transition from working in the world of nonprofits. Um, and when did you decide that that path was not the one you wanted to continue on uh, in the next few years, and what prompted the shift? Sure. So I had the pleasure of working for many of the greatest uh, nonprofits uh, in this space, from animal protection and environmental to public health groups, and I really loved the work I was doing. I was inspired by the people who were mentoring me and by the missions and everybody's commitment to those causes. However, I came to believe that I wasn't being as effective as I wanted to be because 
As I was studying consumer psychology and decision-making, I learned that education and advocacy are all, not always the most effective way to get people to commit behavior change. And studies show actually that education is one of the least effective tools for getting people to change their behaviors. Since my goal was to get people to reduce their consumption of uh, animal products and move towards a more sustainable diet, I started thinking about what was actually going to draw people in. And there's a concept in marketing about push marketing versus pull marketing. And push marketing is where you try to push something on somebody and say, you should do this. And pull marketing is where you make something desirable and then they come to it. And so that really inspired me, the idea that I knew that when I did, you know, leafleting or handed out information about why the world was messed up and people should do something drastic with their lifestyles that was so contrary to what they knew, it wouldn't necessarily be effective as much as I wanted it to be, even though it was still useful. But when I gave somebody a delicious piece of vegan cheesecake um, or a veggie burger and they loved it, they would be so much less uh, overwhelmed and so much more willing to try this kind of thing. So I studied the food industry. I realized that marketing was pretty similar to the advocacy I'd been doing and the fundraising I'd been doing. And so I decided to launch my agency in 2012. And, you know, I have another, I, I love that. I think I'm, I don't use the push and pull marketing um, um, sort of description to, to, to tell people about why we do things the way we do it. But I, the way I position it, and maybe you agree, is uh, focusing on solutions versus focusing on problems. And, you know, as much as I think it is important to do advocacy work and um, to do to raise awareness and to do investigations and to expose what's going on in the world so that people can wake up to those ideas. I think if you don't then back it up with a solution, most people just retreat to doing the same old thing. Um, and focusing on the solutions also shifts the conversation into a positive one versus a negative one where the world is messed up. And I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to sit back on my couch and play some Xbox. Absolutely. I use the example with people that uh, I'm somebody who cares about labor conditions very deeply. And uh, if... I had the opportunity to all the time. I would only buy sweatshop-free clothes. But I hear all about the problem. I know about the problem. I don't want to support child labor. I don't want to support these conditions. But right now, there are very few companies that have accessible, affordable, attractive products that meet my needs. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily being selfish, just like it doesn't mean that somebody's being selfish if they don't change their diets overnight. But I see it as my responsibility as somebody who's committed to advancing this mission to make it more convenient, more accessible, more affordable to make positive choices without having to sacrifice. Right. And so in, in 2012, when you did launch uh, Plan-Based Solutions, uh, your agency that does, um, the way I look at it, everything from strategy to, to marketing for companies in the food space, what... What clear opportunity did you see at that point? It seemed like you, you seemed like you had the right idea. You felt like you wanted to support the industry, support the solutions, get people to identify things that were good and make them taste great food. But 2012, you know, I know it wasn't that long back, but um, things were slightly different back then compared to where it is right now. Sure, it was quite early, and there were a lot of people who definitely thought I was crazy, mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may have been right, and it doesn't mean that they were right that it wouldn't work out. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled that the movement has advanced so much. Th two things happened. First, I heard a speech by a gentleman named Jeff Dunn, who is the former CEO of Coca-Cola North America, 
And he spoke about how after leaving Coca-Cola, where he really came to realize he wasn't proud of the work he'd been doing, he went on to do incredibly innovative marketing and branding campaigns for products like carrots. And he was able to dramatically change how young consumers who had very high rates of diabetes and obesity and other things came to see healthy foods by marketing them as fun, as sexy, as playful and everything else. And I realized if we could do that for delicious vegan products that are coming out there, but aren't yet reaching consumers in that way, that we could go, we could make a real difference. The second thing I saw was with the innovation, the product development and the funding that was starting slowly to come into the space, there were products now coming out that were game changers. And we needed to put the support, we need to build an infrastructure around them, including marketing, including distribution, all these things. And I can tell a story and I can, I can really show people how great something is and make it look good. So if I could use those skills to sell these great products, that's really important. And there were older products that were also fantastic, but that were still being marketed for an older generation of the smaller niche of people who were entirely vegan from the hippie mm -hmm. days. And we've come a long way from that making those products approachable. You know, nutritional yeast is delicious. It is healthy. And there's no reason that only, you know, hippies should eat it. But, When is that going to be rebranded? Right? It really <laughs> needs to be. The name alone needs to be rebranded. And yeah. I think that um, little by little, everybody is coming to the realization that there's a much larger audience that cares about these issues, about eating more vegetables, eating more sustainably. And when we make things approachable and not all or nothing and um, make them attractive and desirable and fun and easy, we're going to get... A lot more folks to our side. Yeah, and I think in a you know definitely you had the foresight amongst many other people around the same time realizing that the products were starting to emerge. I mean, even back in and I say 2012 was a it's a different world back then, but you could you had to go to a, a veg fest or something like that, and you would see the kind of vendors you would see there. The quality of the food even uh, was amazing. It just, they didn't know how to scale that. They didn't know how to brand it, market it. So I, I think I understand where you spotted that you could use your skills and hopefully help them, um, which led to you, uh, the growth that you've had with plant-based solutions. So so kind of let's fast forward. Let's How's the last few years been since your launch of your agency? What kind of clients have you worked with and... Uh, You know, where's that taken you in the uh, since your nonprofit days and now where you are, uh, I guess, firmly embedded into the food industry at the moment? Sure. I've definitely pivoted and now consider myself much more involved in the food industry uh, than in the nonprofit activist -y world. Um, there was a big pivot there and I'm, and I'm happy about that. I mean, I think they're both important, but I'm happy about that. Uh, the last few years have been extraordinary and really... Uh, thrilling and exciting and moving to see how much this space has grown. I've had the privilege of working with companies from new upstarts that are, you know, changing the world. Uh, companies like Perfect Day Foods, companies like Health Warrior, companies like Tree Line Cheese and Miyoko's Kitchen, and then larger brands who have really scaled to a place where they're now having global impact like Gardein and Dea and others of that nature. So we've been privileged um, I've built a team around myself that has incredible experience in the big food industry and is now wanting to apply that to uh, more sustainable, healthy, and ethical businesses. And using those best practices, we've been able to partner with some of the best brands out there. And we're very proud of that. Um, in terms of what it's brought us to, I, I'd say, yes, I think that we are 
you know, for the, for the space, one of the preeminent agencies entirely focused to the space or one of the preeminent businesses entirely focused to the plant-based space. We work with companies in multiple countries, um, not so much to launch them in other countries, but to bring them to the U.S. and expand their market share and many domestically, of course, as well. So it's been a real privilege. And, you know, do you work with um, entrepreneurs at what stage? Is it when they are just idea stage or or everything from... Are there startups even pre-revenue to those that are in, uh, in the hundreds of millions? Absolutely. So I'd say that uh, it's extraordinarily important that a company that or an entrepreneur that is just getting started really plan strategically for where they want to go and how they will get there. And so the work we do at the very beginning pre-revenue at the at the concept stage and at the ideation stage is some of the most valuable um, positioning and understanding what kind of customer you should be reaching, what kind of stores you should be in or online websites you should be in to get to them, what kind of prices you should charge, what kind of products. All these things are things that you want to define early on, validate very quickly through market research and through actual selling and testing what's working, and then continue to build on. So I'd say that the most important time is for a company to do this kind of work right when they're getting started and then as they're in market and growing, we can help them to make sure that everything they're doing is as efficient and effective as possible through testing what kind of tactics in sales distribution or marketing are creating the most growth mm -hmm. and which ones are not as efficient. Yeah, and I think the last few years, while the plant-based food space, and we've touched a lot about a lot on that on this uh, podcast, obviously we talk about how much it's grown in this the last uh, four or five years, there's been an overall focus on food tech uh, in general and the food industry suddenly is the hot space to be where all the um, the big uh, silicon valley vcs were previously pouring millions of dollars into apps and other technologies which uh, to a certain extent they still continue to do but they got more involved in the food space because they saw the the potential here to make a big impact and to solve a big problem which most of them profess to want to do at least uh, in theory, uh, if not practically, um, beyond getting return on investment. So, you know, um, that's so the last few years have been a very interesting time overall in the food space. You seem to have good fortune, foresight. You got into the right space at the right time, but it's still very early days, right? So you're um, we can sit here and I, you know, I, I'm always kind of very I try to be aware, very aware of this, that we sometimes talk to each other so much that we can sometimes feel like, wow, this is, everything's amazing and we're growing and we're succeeding, um, which I think we are. But at the same time, I want us, I think it's very important that people within this food industry or the sub-segment of the food industry, call it uh, food tech that is primarily plant-based or uh, the future of food that's being crafted right now um, that is um, outside of the industrial animal agriculture system, all of it is very um, at a very early stage still, right? We're still barely scratching the surface of potential and um, the fact that there's more money, there's more companies, there's more brands, there's more opportunities is all a good thing, but we still have a long, long way to go. So I want to, before we get into the, the biggest space, I want to get into um, some of the new initiatives that you've gotten involved in because I think that is... Um, you know, you spoke of your first pivot from the nonprofit world into an agency helping food companies. You've recently had 
another pivot while you continue to run your agency where you're now um, the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how that came about. What is Ocean Hugger Foods? Why do we need a company that makes uh, ahimi or tomato sushi or sushi made up to tomatoes? Sure. So as our agency has developed over the years, we've had the privilege to get uh, more deeply involved in our client with our clients. And from an agency standpoint and a business development standpoint, that's very rewarding financially. And it's also very rewarding in terms of impact. Uh, rather than having a lot of clients for whom we're doing a lot of small projects and having to spend a lot of time developing new business, by being partners from the early stage and growing with the company, we can be uh, more involved in their success, their growth, um, benefit from that personally, and also have a greater impact. So that's been a focus for us for a long time. And uh, a few years ago, I met James Corwell. He's the certified master chef who created Ahimi, formerly called Tomato Sushi. Um, and that's the flagship product for Ocean Hugger Foods. And I met him when he was creating this product in his kitchen and did a Kickstarter and was sending it out to people to get feedback on it. And I tried the product and I met him and I read about his background and I was just really touched. First of all, the product is extraordinary. Secondly, I found him to be a man of incredible integrity and uh, discipline, passion, commitment to culinary excellence, and real concern for the oceans and real care. And um, lastly, I knew that I could help. You know, he had all of the incredible skills on the culinary side that I, had, I can barely use a microwave, but I knew that he had a long way to go on the business side and that um, he needed to develop a business out of it, a brand, scale the product, you know, do all these kinds of things. And so while I was getting to know him, I, I came up with an idea that I, that I would want to, if he was open to it, devote myself to, and my team to really making this business a reality. And, uh, that meant a big investment of our time and resources, but it's been the greatest thing we've done. Um, I am still incredibly honored to work with this man and with this product and those to, to come. And basically what Ocean Hugger Foods does is we make seafood alternatives that are very clean ingredients, uh, primarily a single vegetable with a few uh, other natural ingredients that I'll describe. And these replace raw or smoked fishes in restaurants, in sushi bars, in places like that. And the reason that's so important is because by 2050, National Geographic and the New York Times have reported that there will be zero fish of any species in the oceans. You know, billions and billions of fish are consumed for food every year, not only from the wild, which is horrible because of the impact it has on coral reefs and on our oceans themselves, but also from farmed fish, which are thought to be more sustainable, but often create huge, you know, uh, use of hormones and pesticides and toxins and create all kinds of problems. Um, not to mention you often are fishing in the wild to feed farmed fish. So it doesn't actually address, um, protecting stocks in the oceans either. And there are specific species that are near extinction that we use every single day. Putting aside the environmental and animal standpoints, there's also a real human as aspect here. Not just the fact that fish have very high levels of mercury and PCBs and toxins, but also the fact that the vast majority or a huge percentage of the world relies on seafood as their primary source of nourishment. And as we deplete, deplete the stocks of fish for the global West 
to be able to consume more and more as things like sushi become more trendy, entire populations in coastal areas around the world are not able to access what for them is their source of protein. So regardless of what issue you come to this from, protecting oceans is extraordinarily important. And our chef figured that out when he went to see the Tsukiji fish market in Tokyo, where every single weekday they auction off 4 million pounds of tuna, Mm -hmm. which are one of the most endangered and most consumed species of fish. And so he came up with this idea to make tomatoes taste like raw tuna, and it's an incredible product. So you were drawn to it because uh, a combination of obviously the why and why we need to solve the problem of, uh, of consumption of seafood. And if anyone's interested in learning more about that specific subject, we had Captain Paul Watson on the podcast a few episodes back. And if listening to him doesn't convince you why uh, seafood is a problem, then uh, I don't think anything will. Um, perhaps trying a he will. <laughs> so um, I, I think... Um, you know, it's it's a very exciting space. It's one of those um, sub segments of um, the world of animal products. I think that has been an untapped space. I mean, there are some companies that have offered some products in that uh, area, but um, I, you know, I don't think many of them have really managed to scale and reach the kind of broad, widespread acceptance. Primarily because maybe people just don't love the products or. I don't know what the state... I personally haven't found something I love. Um, so I can speak for myself. I can't speak for everyone else. Um, so it's an untapped space. I mean, looking at it purely from... Um, you know, one is the problem we have to solve, as you very articulately pointed out right now. It is a problem, and we need to find a solution for it. Secondly, in terms of... If you look at the growth in the plant-based food space and the natural food space with an interest in cleaner, healthier ingredients and foods seafood is one that there was never a solution for. And uh, to me, you know, even if you don't care about the environment for whatever reasons, or you don't care about the fat of fish and whether they have emotions or anything, if you care about your health, you should not be consuming seafood. In addition to all the toxins, you have plastics. And it's it's, it's just the, the reasons not to consume seafood or to find a better alternative are millions. But the answers are the solutions. And when we started off uh, this discussion talking about focusing on the solutions or pull marketing, here you have something, uh, someone who's a, who's a um, trained chef who's bringing that culinary experience and then applying it to solve a problem, which I think is one of the most exciting things that is happening right now in the plant-based food space. So I know that's a long-winded way to get to my next question, but the point being is I think it's a space that needs a solution. There aren't enough solutions today that can that, that can present something viable for people. Um, and so I'm excited to try the product myself. I haven't yet, but um, uh, when it comes out in Whole Foods, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be there to test it out. But... I'd love to know where you want to take this with uh, Ocean Hugger Foods. You know, you seem to have come on board. You're you're obviously very optimistic about the product. I know I mentioned Whole Foods because you have a you have a you're launching in Whole Foods in a few cities um, in the next uh, few weeks. Tell me more about where you want to take Ahimi. What's the vision for this product and for Ocean Hugger Foods overall um, in the short term and perhaps in the long term? Sure. So I agree with you that this has been a largely untapped space. Very few companies have 
focused on the seafood alternative space and its time. Um, I don't know anybody who has focused on the the raw seafood space, and that's mm-hmm. one of the fastest growing calendar, uh, categories in the culinary world, especially in food service. Sushi and poke are two of the biggest trends yeah. globally right now. So um, as that is accelerating, we have a, a growing problem that's even accelerating worse for the oceans. In terms of where we see ahimi, and, and, and ahimi, by the way, means the spirit of ahi, and that is our first product, our tomato-based tuna alternative. Um, and then we have other products that I can talk about later. In terms of where we see this company going, we are so thrilled that when we first launched the company, our vision was that we would know we had really succeeded when we could stand in front of the most traditional uh, conservative uh, Japanese sushi chef and have them taste this product and have them accept it as befitting the sushi bar. And, you know, we always thought that will be the day. In the meantime, we can start by marketing to, you know, folks who are millennials in urban cities and this and that, whatever. What we found, which was so extraordinary, we, we did a, the trade show called the National Restaurant Association Show. It's the largest food service show in the country, tens of thousands of people only in the industry. And the first team that stopped and became completely enthralled by our booth and kept coming back over and over again was the single largest Asian foods distributor in North America, which is Japanese owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have huge operations in Japan and in North America and even some in Europe. And they immediately got it, and they loved the product. And they loved the product for several reasons. One, they thought it looked and tasted so much like ahi tuna that it was a dead ringer, which is actually what NPR said about us, a dead ringer for ahi tuna. (laughs) Um, And they just thought that it was a natural replacement. Secondly, they are selling so much fish that they really understand what the financial and sustainable constraints are on this market. They have to raise prices significantly or drop prices suddenly because the price volatility is so tied to the supply that is so up and down. And there have been times where they've had to eliminate entire fishes that are extremely popular from their offerings. And two years ago, for example, they said that eel raised 8x, eight times the price in a single year. And so they had to take it out of all their menus. They supplied thousands and thousands of sushi bars across the country because they just couldn't get it anymore or not affordably. Um, With that kind of price volatility and more importantly, that kind of volatility because of lack of supply, because of these fish no longer being there to fish, they get that this is an economic opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. They think it's delicious. They think it's a big economic opportunity. It's also a lot cheaper uh, than fish is. And so that means that everybody wins. And more people can afford it than, than traditional seafood. So we see this product fitting into the traditional sushi restaurants, into seafood environments, and not into the health food stores, you know, uh, meat alternative section. Nothing against those products. I think it's important that we create a variety of tools and a, ability, a ways for people to be able to choose more sustainable eating. But... Our first two distributors are this company in the U.S. that is focused entirely on the Asian markets. And then secondly, the largest seafood distributor in North America that also met us at that show. And um, they're selling to traditional seafood buyers. And that's who we're speaking to. So the fact that right out of the gate, we're being not only accepted, but uh, glowingly received Mm -hmm. by seafood and sushi buyers, chefs, and leaders says to us that we're making a real impact. And that's where we'll have the 
global impact beyond just if we were reaching the folks who were going to eat this way anyway. So your goal is to focus on food service with uh, with Ocean Hunger Foods, um, and why did you choose that versus the CPG route? Sure. So when we consider whether to launch something to consumers directly or through food service like restaurants or to stores in retail, it really has to do with several factors. But one is how is the consumer going to use the product? And what we tested and thought about is that most American consumers, not all, but the majority of American consumers do not prepare raw fish meals at home. Mm -hmm. They may buy raw fish and then cook it, but they're unlikely to be making sushi, making poke or tartare or ceviche, all the things that our product can be used for. And yet consumption of those items and those dishes is skyrocketing because of the out-of-the-house consumption, either takeout or meals out. And so if we know that sushi consumption is expanding, but it's it's expanding in restaurants and not from people buying off the shelf and taking things home, we want to be where it's going to be purchased, and that's in the restaurants. The other reason is we are proud to be a chef-driven business. Our founder is a chef, and that is the core of what we do. And we never want people to have to sacrifice for what they're doing. It is so important to us that our product is culinarily and, and sensorially excellent. And so working with other chefs who can also bring this product through to consumers in the way that only a chef can is a really important thing for us. And that's why we like being in restaurants. Right. And in terms of, um, so I guess your focus is going to be um, raw fish um, sort of replacements in the short term. Is that the area you're, you're, you're trying to develop new products in as well going forward? So that is, that is the short term. We have products in other categories as well, still within the ocean seafood mm-hmm. worlds, including we've we've shared that we do have a smoked salmon replacement, for example, um, that will come out eventually. But right now we're really focused on the raw fish space. We have a Himi, our tomato-based tuna, and sometime in 2018, we don't know exactly when yet, but uh, we've already developed and will be launching our eggplant-based eel that we call Unami, like unagi, but it's the mm-hmm. spirit of eel. And then sakimi, which is the spirit of salmon. And that will be also a product used for uh, raw preparation in sushi or other things like that. So those are our first products in our in our pipeline. And uh, we believe there's a huge opportunity in that market. And with sushi and poke, we can reach you know, millions of consumers and have a real impact. Yeah, it's very on trend. Um, and of course, it's... Um timely and is needed. So uh, all the factors seem to be aligned for it to do well. Um, can you, I know I alluded to the Whole Foods uh, partnership. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And um, where do you see that helping sort of amplify your brand and your um, consumer acceptance of your product when once it's out there? Absolutely. So the partnerships we're forming with companies like Whole Foods have made a huge difference. Um, Right now, we are launching in Whole Foods on November 1st in stores in New York City and Los Angeles. And if all goes well there, we have been told that we'll be uh, rolled out nationwide. So please, if you live in either of the cities or if you know people who do, we'd love for you to go to the sushi bars in those stores and order up on uh, November 1st or after that. And uh, that partnership is extremely valuable for us. The consumer audience is very open to these kinds of products. 
They sell a lot of sushi, um, and they know how to work with it because they have professional sushi chefs in all their stores making it. And they're really committed to sustainability and to ethical consumption and uh, to health. So we really appreciate that they understand this product, that they love it. Um, we were approached by the leadership from the company about being able to do this with them, and we couldn't be more honored to form that partnership. Uh, in addition, our partnership with our with our seafood distributor, with our Asian foods distributor, and with the other companies that we're bringing on, like Google's headquarters and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these different companies and Bon Appetit Management Company, which is a large institutional food service provider that mm -hmm. actually operates those cafeterias for those corporations and colleges, um, is a major partner of ours. And we just feel very fortunate to work with people who are forward thinking, committed to sustainable, healthy and ethical eating but and selling, but also who understand that products have to be delicious affordable and accessible to work and so they're as if not you know they're, they're at least as committed to us as understanding that we have to not only make it a a good mission product but also a great product in and of itself and that's the only way we can succeed yeah that's the given at this point day you know in this day and age when people are looking for plant-based options to things they traditionally eat they aren't going to try it again if they don't like how it tastes. So if your product isn't good, you're, you're kind of out of luck at the moment. Um, are you also talking to restaurants? Have you gotten interest from, I can I can imagine this is something that a lot of uh, restaurants would love to have on their menus, given, um, given the trend of uh, sushi and poke and all of that. Absolutely. So uh, we did some what are called tabletop trade shows where we went with our distributors to meet with their own customers and Almost all of those customers are restaurants, and we had so many orders placed on the spot from sushi, you know, one-off or multi-location sushi outlets and poke outlets and others. Um, and there's been a lot of excitement. Um, our distributors are going to be bringing us through into those restaurants over the next uh, month or two. We'll be launching very, very broadly. Um, you know, we built this business by... Uh, as I consult a lot of my clients to do by first doing a small test market. You know, it's often called in the tech space a minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. uh, we took something to market. We uh, focused our resources, which were very limited, on a narrow set of stores and testing things. We got a lot of feedback. We learned how we could provide better training for chefs to how to use our product. We made it, you know, we learned about how we could package it better and all these different things. And also our branding. We did change our product name and mm -hmm. uh, rebranded and so a lot of that learning has now been brought to this national launch. So we did that big trade show. We're now securing major distribution relationships and major um, customer relationships. And that's where we are now. And so, yeah, restaurants are a perfect fit for this kind of product. And uh, we're very excited to be working with so many of them. Yeah, I think this is a very exciting uh, space to be in. I can't wait to get this. As I mentioned before, I can't wait to try the product myself. And I highly encourage everyone listening, if you are close to a Whole Foods once this is out uh, or once this episode is out, uh, go and ask for it. So um, I, we definitely want to get behind something like this. Uh, one last question about um, Ocean Hugger Foods. Uh, how has this transition been for you as a... Uh, someone who went from the nonprofit world then became started an agency helped a number of brands in the space continue to help a number of brands in the space but you're wearing a different hat now at ocean hugger foods um running a food business which as much as you know i've been a consultant in the past as much as you can tell people what to do to do it yourself is a completely different ball game so how has that transition been um 
How are you managing to balance both? It's been wonderful. It's been terrifying. It's been humbling. And it's been important. Um, it makes me a better everything, right? It certainly makes me a better consultant. Um, operating a food business that has production and logistics and distribution and sales and you know, such a different business model and profit and loss statement than an agency does is something that I've seen from the outside. And now I get to experience it on the inside. Um, just so I don't sound like I've been telling people what to do without any experience, my team around me all has very significant experience that I've, and I've brought them on because of that. So they've all run food businesses before, um, but it was new for me to do it directly. And it's been really, really wonderful and terrifying. You know, there are always bumps in the road for any early stage business. And we've had to learn, you know, we, um, you know, had a large lift to figure out how to take something that was made by a certified master chef in his own kitchen by his expert hands and, you know, billion dollar knives and turn that into something that could be scaled and shipped globally mm -hmm. um, or eventually, you know, distributed globally. So that was a big process. And we had to, you know, figure out how big machines match his hands, which they, <laughs> it's not easy. So uh, we've learned a lot and it's been thrilling. And um, I'm excited to continue on in this role and to continue building this business. It's at a tipping point very early on still, but it's on a tipping point of scaling nationwide and, and into Mexico and Canada. Also, we've just, uh, been in discussions with additional distributors in Mexico and we're very excited about it. Um, I've learned so much and I continue to, and it makes me better for my other clients. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm very, always very fascinated by the combination of skills and expertise that is required to take a food product that tastes great into something that can be scaled up uh, and turned into a real company and a real business. And it is uh, monumentally challenging. I mean, I, I've worked in the tech space and in the media space and I see that, but the more I learn about the food space, I mean, this, um, some of the systems are old and some of the ways of working are not the best, but you have to, you have to fit your, you know, groundbreaking ideas within a sort of, um, archaic distribution manufacturing model. And, um, of course there's, there's efforts being made to, to upgrade that and change that, but you're still working with a lot of constraints and you've got to play within that system and uh, try to innovate within some significant constraints. Um, and all of it takes a lot of money. So, um, I think it's a very unique and exciting business to be in, but one that may, you know, on the surface seem pretty simple. Oh, this is a great chef and you're, you have a business now and it's in Whole Foods. But, uh, you know, that's not how it works. And if you think it's that simple, you're probably going to fail if you're not willing to at least learn um, how to get it done the right way. Now, I can probably talk about Ocean Hugger Foods and the work that you've done uh, advising clients in this space um, for the next one hour. But I, I do want to pick your brain on some broader and bigger ideas of what's happening in the plant-based food space now, because I think you've had a bird's eye view of um, the developments from the early years to the still pretty early years where we are now, but definitely at a point where there's a lot of growth, uh, a lot of money, and a lot of great innovation happening right now. So I want to shift gears a little bit to what your take is on the state of the union when it comes to the plant-based food space um you know if you had to 
meet someone and give a quick elevator speech and say, why should someone invest in this space? Why should someone be excited about plant-based foods? How would you sum that up? And what would you say is the reason they should get into the space now? There's only upside is the first to answer. The space is booming, but for everybody thinks because we're so inside this space, we might think that it's massive already and it is growing very quickly but there's just still so much opportunity. Uh, one of your previous guests, Bruce Friedrich, frequently cites the fact that non-dairy milks now make up 11 to 12% of the mil- of the fluid milk category. I just saw 14 today. I, oh, is it 14 I, yeah, now? That's I, incredible. Possibly, yeah. That's incredible. I'm sure it wasn't anywhere near that a few years ago. And when you look at the meat alternative space, including mm-hmm. you know fish and chicken and beef and everything else, it's much less than 1% of the category. So even if you just grew that space to match where non-dairy milks have gone, and trust me, non-dairy milks haven't stopped growing. They're on a crazy uh, trajectory, and dairy milks are declining very quickly. So even if we just brought that same success to other non-dairy products and to meat alternatives and fish alternatives and all these other things, there's only upside financially. The second reason is that the demand is only going to keep on growing. The cost of producing animal products is going to continue to grow as land becomes more scarce, as access to clean water becomes harder, as, um, you know, as uh, foodborne illness spreads more and more quickly, as natural disasters cause it to be more difficult to farm around the world. And it's, it's very unfortunate, but it's a reality. And we need to consider how we feed billions of people sustainably, ethically, and healthfully, and That's not easy to do when you're taking so much food and converting it into burned calories in animals to then consume a lot less protein, fiber, whatever, whatever nutrients you need. And so these products are only going to grow as the world requires it. And as consumers wake up to the fact that we really want to be eating more whole foods, healthy, you know, meals. So uh, I think there's a huge opportunity. It's growing. And beyond investors, I also want to speak to those entrepreneurs who are thinking about entering this space. And I think that because it's so exciting and we're so much in the news, it feels like we've gotten somewhere. But we have such a long way to go. This movement and this industry, and I've always tried to look for a word that combines those two concepts, by the way, movement (laughs) and industry. Uh, I put it out to your listeners to find one and tell us. Um, This industry has really blossomed in the last five years. But to get it to where it needs to go to make the global impact we want to, we need more distributors, more investors, more brokers, more producers, more chefs, more marketers, more everything. And it's in a really exciting time. Everybody who I speak to who is desperate to get into this space is doing so and finding a real opportunity. And it's only going to keep going. And, you know, I, I think that's a great pitch for anyone who's curious or wants to get into the space. And I think... Um, you know, I, I completely agree, definitely, 100%. But I want to play devil's advocate for a second. And, um, you know, I know your reason you got into this, the reason I got into the space, and the reason a lot of people right now who are uh, doing amazing, innovative things in the plant-based food world got in is because they were driven by their mission to either help animals, um, help the planet, help future generations on Earth um, survive. But the more success we see in the plant-based food space, the more um, financial opportunity presents itself to people who 
uh, either in the food industry already or thinking of uh, jumping on the bandwagon and uh, launching their own little version of um, plant-based seafood startup tomorrow, right? Because you can, seems like it, as I said earlier, it seems like uh, it's fairly easy. You need to create some product and have a fancy deck and go pitch a bunch of uh, big investors and they'll hand you a few million dollars because this is the hot space right now. How important is mission, do you think? Because, you know, I'm not saying everyone is just jumping on the bandwagon and doesn't know what they're doing. There are a lot of people who know what they're doing, experienced entrepreneurs, perhaps experienced in the food space that are spotting an opportunity here and are saying, hey, wait a minute, we need to make products in that space. So maybe my next company needs to be a plan-based X. Is mission still important or does it matter? You know, does it not matter as long as they make a good product and people are eating plant-based? It doesn't matter why you're doing it. Maybe you want to make a billion dollars. Maybe that's why you're doing it. So I'll start by saying that in my work, one of the things that's making me most proud is the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs who really care about all these things. And there are many. Um, we have an entrepreneur who made things because his child was autistic and he found that he actually was able to improve his child's health and social skills through eating non-dairy and gluten-free and everything. That's amazing. Um, so mission really does matter to me. That said, I think we need to look beyond what motivates us to accomplish something if it means that the goal is going to be reached more efficiently, effectively, and quickly, and with less suffering. And the reality is many large companies have the ability to scale the impact that we're making much more quickly than we can, starting from scratch. And if we can collaborate in a way that we can scale globally and get our products in front of people who would not have access to them and be able to make that change, then we need to consider if we're putting our pride ahead of the actual impact. Are we, if we care about animals, are we choosing to sacrifice animals' lives because we only want to work with vegans? I think it's a real limitation and same for the environment and same for health. If we're about the mission, what's going to get that, get us there and spare more uh, suffering to all. And the second consideration is I think we need to be careful of vilifying everybody in big businesses. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that I do like, you know, the chemical laden products that have been, you know, fed us for so many years, but every single day I meet people from very large food companies and companies in other industries who tell me that they've always wanted to do something like what I do. And it was just now that they've realized they actually can make a living out of it. And they also are making decisions every day about how they're feeding their families, how they're surviving. And so there are plenty of mission driven people in these large companies who are inspired by what's happening and are wanting to make good choices. So I, I think that we need to be careful to assume that it's all greed based. One example is a few months ago, I was at a local conference where I was brought in to speak as an expert on some issues about plant-based. And before we did that, everybody in the room was asked to share what the future of food looked like to them. And this gentleman stood up and he said, my name is John Nash. I'm the head of protein innovation at Cargill. And he said, yes, we used to call it the beef, chicken, and turkey innovation team, but it's not what it's about anymore. It's about protein. And he said, and I believe the future of food is plant-based and it should be. Wow. And Cargill is one of the largest animal, you know, processing companies in the world. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, 
won't you get fired for saying that? And he said, absolutely not. He said, we get it. Mm-hmm. And we're making those commitments. Look at how much money we're investing in this. We are spending so much of our time on finding ways to develop new plant-based and in this case also insect-based and other whatever they're looking at. They're looking at alternative proteins, not just because it makes money, but because they know that that's how they can protect their shareholders and how they can protect the world. And he was committed to this as the future of food. So I was really inspired by that since then, that company that still, they still are very involved in the meat industry, but they also have closed every single Either feed, I think that they've closed every single feedlot they were managing, and they've started a fund with mm-hmm. millions and millions of dollars to invest in these plant-based proteins using money that would have gone to killing animals. So I think we need to consider that those companies are able to make a massive impact, and it's up to us to make sure that we, in, to, that we raise awareness among consumers and, and build that trust so that we can protect the values that we establish and get to know these companies before we sell to them or anything else to make sure they're not going to mess with our values or deceive consumers and protect these this integrity. But we also can recognize they can bring great benefit. Yeah, at this stage, I think you're right. It needs to happen as much as I, you know, I, I see the dangers of it. Um, not so much with, with Tyson and, and Cargill necessarily because they are replacing uh, an animal-based product and looking for a very non-animal version of it that will hopefully make them the same amount of money and they know will be the most sustainable thing to do. Um, I think that it gets trickier with other products that include a variety of ingredients. And, you know, we'll, we'll deal with this pro- these problems when we get there. But I see the, the challenges uh, in the horizon. And, and maybe you can see, tell me what, what else do you see out there that could be a challenge is when you have, um, you know, when you have ingredients being... Uh, added into products because maybe they're cheaper. Uh, perhaps they're not one of those big allergens like dairy, but they do happen to be from an animal source. You know, where do you draw the line between, um, oh, it's just a little bit of this because we, you know, it, it doesn't harm anyone. It has good health benefits, but uh, it's still tied into that uh, massive uh, industrial farming machine that we still largely are dependent on at the moment as a, as a global population. So I see some of those challenges coming about. Um, and also, you know, it depends on the industry. You know, when it comes to meat, it's, it's slightly different. When it comes to, uh, let's say, processed foods or packaged foods, it's slightly different because it includes a combination of ingredients. But I guess to... to uh, to take this question forward and to take this discussion, let's talk about acquisitions because that's right now that's already happening, right? What Tyson is doing is they're getting into the space. That's great. Um, a lot of new companies are starting, whether because they are aligned with the mission or they want to wear the badge of the mission and, and, and profit from it, whatever the reasons, reasons may be. The real example we're facing now is there is... Um, interest from big food in plant-based companies. There have been a number of acquisitions in the last few years. There will be many more in the years ahead. I see it as a positive sign. Uh, what, are your, what is your take on the pros and cons of um, a big, very clearly not plant-based food company with all the benefits and the strengths of it, but also the drawbacks of it, acquiring these, these trusted mission-driven valued brands that are um that have good products sure so one so so i would say first of all that i think 
from the entrepreneur's standpoint, it's a very personal decision. And it's based on what one's goals are in starting or running a business. Some entrepreneurs are starting businesses for the goal of supporting their families and then one day being able to pass that family business on to their children. And that's a beautiful thing. And there is nothing wrong with that. And they may want to keep it small. And that's great too. And sometimes smaller businesses can be profitable more quickly and can accrue more to that family's income than having to scale a business very quickly and make it globally you know, sized, but also take a long time to get to profit. So there's nothing wrong with being a small business or being a lifestyle business that mm -hmm. one retains in their family. The other consideration is that sometimes growing a business very quickly and maybe even selling it, as I was talking about before, can increase impact. Um, if you, you know, if you're a non-dairy ice cream, you start selling with Unilever, which owns most of the largest ice cream brands in the world, and you get into ice cream freezers or at every store in the world under that section of the fridge, you're going to get much more shelf space. And that means more people are going to see you, more people are going to switch from dairy to non-dairy. That's life-saving. So there are real benefits, and they can order your ingredients more cheaply in bulk and all these things. There are real benefits to partnering with large brands. There is a concept in acquisitions of big companies, by big companies, of smaller companies, known as buy to deny. And that means that there occasionally are acquisitions with the intention of shutting down, silencing, or eliminating uh, a competitor. And that doesn't just happen with big brands buying up small ethical brands. But more and more what's happening today is that large food companies, because they are largely public and because they have big shareholders who are very risk averse, they are choosing not to invest a lot of money in innovating because it's very risky and it's very expensive. You know, most businesses fail. And so rather than trying a million different new products and seeing what succeeds and spending a lot of money when they could just be figuring out how to cut costs or increase market share on their known successes, they choose to not innovate too much, keep with their current products that they can, you know, work around the margins with. And then wait till somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, till the ground settles around a few other companies and decides which the winners are and then acquire them. What that means is that they see value in these brands they're acquiring and they're only acquiring them because they believe they will bring value to them. They believe that they are accessing consumers that they have not been able to access. You know, Coke gets that by buying Honest Tea, mm -hmm. they were reaching consumers who cared more about sustainability and weren't probably buying Coke. So they are not buying that necessarily in those circumstances because they think they're better than them. They're buying them because they realize they have a gap in what they can do and the others have done that. So they have some incentive not to mess with the formula of the ingredients or with the values that company maintains. Um, sometimes they may. And so I think it's important that every entrepreneur really investigates and researches and you know, tries to suss that out and maybe even contractually require those protections. But often these big companies are buying these smaller companies because there's benefit to them mm -hmm. of diversifying into this new area that they haven't been able to figure out. A great example of that is when Colgate Palmolive bought Toms of Maine. People were very scared. But if you look at if you look at Toms of Maine back of their label, it still says what the same percentage of their profits go to charity. It still says that every employee has to devote a certain number of hours to community service. They still use post consumer recycled packaging. They still don't test on animals or use any animal ingredients. So Colgate Palmolive doesn't, you know, do that nation for the entire company. But they are not messing with that formula mm -hmm. because they have consumers they weren't reaching with Colgate and with Palmolive. Um, so that's a really great example of that. I also want to mention two books that I think tell the stories of this dilemma very well. 
One is the book Mission in a Bottle by Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea and now the chairman of Beyond Meat's board of directors. And the other is the book Raising the Bar by Gary Erickson, who founded Cliff Bar. Seth Goldman tells the story of how he not only was able to accelerate and expand the good work that he had been doing through Honest Tea, but by allowing Coca-Cola to purchase his company, he was actually able to require that they make changes in their entire supply chain for all of their brands of products. Mm -hmm. So they committed to reducing plastic, not just by not switching to plastic for his stuff or worsening the plastic for his, but actually reducing plastic for all their companies. They committed to reducing GMOs for all of their products. So he was able to get in there and make that difference. Um, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, the company that just bought Daya and was you know, heavily attacked by some plant-based consumers for being, you know, a company that does animal mm -hmm. testing or this or that. They've said one of the reasons they bought Daya, well, other than the financial motive where they really see that it's a growing category and they believe in these products, another reason is they see that Daya has developed technology and know-how that they want to carry across to their other products. So they're saying this plant-based company does things that we don't know how to do and so imagine if they take that plant-based ingredient and they leverage that across their portfolios, they turn other products plant-based. Right. That's extraordinary. And so we need to consider all those benefits. Raising the bar, on the other hand, is about uh, Gary Erickson from Cliff Bar realizing that the sale he was about to make of his company was not going to protect the values he held so dear about protecting the livelihoods of the workers he had had with him and protecting the ingredients and everything else, he decided not to sell and was still extremely successful, maybe more so than he would have been. And so it's a personal choice for those entrepreneurs. There are benefits to both. I encourage people to read those books. And um, let's just not be closed-minded about the fact that sometimes working with big industry can be a really wonderful uh, opportunity for financial as well as impact. And sometimes keeping a business in internally can be a better bet. Yeah, those are great book recommendations. You know, I think it comes down to a very loyally answer, but it's it depends. It depends on uh, what your goals are. It depends on uh, the goals of the company that is acquiring you or your brand. Um, and I think when it really works well is when, it's, I think you kind of um, illustrated that pretty well, is when the big company acquiring the smaller brand gets access to consumers that they didn't have before and the smaller brand that's being acquired gets access to distribution that they would never be able to get unless it would take them maybe 10 15 years to get there so you know whether it's it's honesty is a great example i love that you brought them up because you know now honesty can you can find honesty everywhere and so same with tom's of maine um still the same product but you can buy it literally everywhere and that's when you're making um, an impact. That's when you're succeeding. So I guess that leads me to the question I really think people should think about before they start a company, as they're scaling the company, as they're dealing with um, decisions around investment or um, growth or an acquisition is how do you define success? And I think, you know, is... We're, we're in, it's an industry, and I love the fact that you pointed out, is it an industry, is it a movement, right? Because it seems kind of uh, at odds with each other sometimes. Because do you define success as we built a, a business and we scaled it and we sold so many products and the company was uh, 
um, you exited for X uh, million dollars? Or do you measure success based on you build this business, you acquire 10, 15% market share away from, say, um, the dairy industry? Um, and you've created that kind of impact where now majority of consumers prefer non-dairy beverages. How do you measure and define what is your idea of success? Because I think it depends, right? Some people may come in purely for financial reasons. What do you define success in this movement slash industry as? And, you know, what is what does that look to you? So I think that they are actually very intertwined because I tell people that if I didn't believe that the products that I back are the single greatest products uh, for that category, for consumers, for the world, then I wouldn't be able to work with them. And by representing those products, by selling those products, by making those products, by getting them out there, if I believe that, then every single unit that I sell is replacing something that is less good. Because I've defined that that way, right? I've said, I know this is the most sustainable or the most healthy, or the most ethical, whatever. So if my veggie burger takes a meat burger off somebody's plate, I have saved a cow. I have reduced their chance of a heart attack. I've saved, you know, uh, rainforest acres. So the more I sell, the more impact I have. And I'm very, very motivated and moved by this new way of understanding social business and thinking about it uh, not as greed and profit driven, but actually thinking that you also don't have to turn away from sales or be scared to make money because making money can be the single greatest thing you do for the world. The example I can use there is Gardein mm -hmm. of Yves Putvin, who founded Gardein, was able to start that company because he had previously started Eve's Veggie Cuisine and sold that company for a lot of money and then took that money to start Gardein, which is an even bigger company. So making money, you could donate it, you can use it to reinvest in new technologies and new things that advance the cause even greater. Um, and just the fact that you're selling those products may in and of, may in and of itself mean that you are making a greater impact. And I believe that. So the more ahimi I sell, the more fish are saved and the more our oceans are protected. And I'm not worried about whether I should be thinking more about should I be making more money or should I be you know, saving more fish? Right. They are not different. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think it really, um, you know, I think something to keep in mind for someone who's planning to get into the space, I think, is to pick a real category where you can be a potential leader in. Um, because I see a lot of, you know, some sub-segments of this industry, we discuss um, non-dairy beverages or plant-based milks, is what, whether 10, 14% of market share right now. And, and, and it seems to be an influx of new brands in that space. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Thiel's concept of you need to create uh, monopolies or mini monopolies. You should own a category. If you can't own a category, don't get into it. Like forget competition. You should be number one in whatever category, even if it's a small one. Um, and start small and then scale up from there. So we, you know, he talks about Facebook, how they didn't become Facebook as it is today overnight. They started by being the social network for universities. And they own that. And then they took that concept and then scaled it up. I see and I guess this is a question for you in terms of how you see it too. Do, would you encourage 
brands to get into new categories, how to find white spaces versus just jump onto the area where the, you know, the consumer trend seems to be going up. So, you know, maybe I'll add another product in that space and say I'm branded in a slightly different way. Um, that's the part that I don't get so excited about because I feel like you're not really making impact. Then you're just kind of, you're kind of just, um, you're trying to ride a wave. <laughs> so I, I, I think there are real serious benefits to being first to market. Uh, I, a couple of books that I would also recommend by two, by the same authors are, uh, the 22 immutable laws of marketing and the 22 immutable laws of branding. And one of the first things they address is that those companies that are first to market in a category historically have always been the most successful. And they've done blind taste tests and blind product uh, you know, acceptance tests with some of the biggest brands out there. And if you look at blind taste tests with Coca-Cola and other cola beverages, Coca-Cola does not score the highest scores. Mm -hmm. Neither does Pepsi. Um, often products that are unknown are the ones that are receiving the best approval when they're blind taste tests. But because consumers are so used to those products and because Coca-Cola was the first big cola, um, that makes them successful. And today they've grown so much market share. So very often that's true. Um, and I do believe real innovation is about creating new categories. There can be times where innovating within a category uh, can make a big difference. I mean, if you're able to do something that is substantially different and dramatically improves that product from a nutritional standpoint, a functional standpoint, a health standpoint, whatever, that can be really impactful. Um, but often being first to market is, is, is extremely valuable. The other thing to consider around those two options is if you are going to be first to market, make sure that the category that you're creating is actually in demand. Mm -hmm. And just because it's new, it doesn't mean it's good. I could make an edible couch and it doesn't mean people want it. So uh, the fact that something's innovative, you might think it's the greatest thing in the world, but you've got to validate everything because people are not always excited just because you are. And new categories mean having to spend a lot of money on time on educating and making people aware about the existence of that category. So it can be a huge risk and a large spent expense. Um, the other consideration is just because you're first to market doesn't mean you have no competition. Mm -hmm. I always people say to people say to people say that I always hear people <laughs> say to me, "Oh well, I don't have competition because there's nothing like this. Nobody else is doing a, a flavored cou edible, edible couch." I say, "Okay, but people are eating something." instead of yours or they're using something to accomplish that same goal they have limited wallet space they have only so much money in the bank account and so when they're buying things and they're spending their budget or when they're carrying things home from the grocery store they have to make certain choices based on what they can physically hold in their arms what they can afford and so you are replacing something in that consumer's life and that is your competition. Yeah. And if you're a breakfast item, maybe you were the Pop-Tart and you were first to market, but you were competing with cereal. Yeah. And the internet competed with the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And if we don't recognize that, then we won't really understand what pain points we're solving for consumers. And it's extremely dangerous to have that blindness. Yeah, I, love th I love that, that you brought that up because, you know, I used a similar example for media consumption. I mean, you may say, well, I'm the first uh, ex-media uh, platform um, no one else is doing this. You're competing with all media out there. So uh, at the end of the day, as much as room someone has in their grocery cart or their you know monthly budget, 
Same when it comes to consumption of information. You have only that much attention on so many hours in the day and only so many different things you can pay attention to at any given time, even if you're multitasking, which we all are throughout the day. So it's, um, you know, understanding what is it that you're taking away people's attention from? What what foods are you replacing? Uh, and having that mindset is is crucial. I think it's great, great advice, uh, advice for anyone whether a food entrepreneur or any entrepreneur in general. So um, I, what else would you generally tell someone who's getting into the space? And I know this could be a long answer depending on how you take it, but um, what are the simple do's and don'ts that you've learned from your uh, time advising companies and, and also now in terms of uh, running your own company? Uh, that's a food company. So let's focus on food for now. Sure. Know what you're good at and where you want to spend your time and bring the people, surround yourself with the people who are good at and want to do the things that you won't be doing because nobody is good at marketing and branding and sales and distribution and production and logistics and et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, accounting, all those things. These businesses have so much going on in them. There's so much to handle. And so if you're somebody who just loves to make food, great. Be the producer or be the chef or whatever else, but um, be aware of that. And, 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 you know, you may find yourself very frustrated if you start a business and suddenly have to spend all your time running the books. So just consider that. The second thing is it does take longer and more money to do this than uh, you're going to expect. Um, many of my clients or many potential clients come to me and they say, oh, I've got a great idea for a product. I want to launch it into stores across the country and I'm so excited to have it at every home in America. And I say, okay, great. And uh, I say, oh, it sounds like a cool product. Sounds great. And they say, you know, how much money do you think I need? And I tell them, well, to get started for a consumer packaged good in the food world, um, to launch something even regionally that has a good shot of being able to go nationwide, you should anticipate having a quarter million to a half a million dollars. And that's a very, very large number. I certainly don't have that money. And people get very scared by that. And I understand it. And I don't want to suggest that there aren't stories of people who have success uh, with smaller amounts, but they are not that common. And they often had to find uh, interim steps to get there. Mm -hmm. So Smorgasburg is a local New York-based you know, street fair food market where people have gained enough traction by selling at these food stalls that eventually they were able to open a restaurant or get a product into stores. Great. You know, farmer's markets, selling online, direct to consumers, a few units at a time. There are ways to do it low budget and to learn a lot from what people like and test who your consumer mm -hmm. is and all these things, get feedback about your messaging and marketing. And so I recommend people think about that before they either spend a ton of money without knowing that they're spending it on something that actually will succeed, but also uh, before they try to launch into something like the massive retail world. Um, the average supermarket has 60,000 different products in there. And most products that people will buy are the ones they already know. So for you to break through and find your consumer or vice versa is going to be very expensive. And so prepare for that. And and it's not to dissuade people, but it's there are people for the right products with the right team and with people who are willing to learn and grow and face challenges who will fund you. But you need to be working with the other right people. You need to be prepared for the lumps and bumps. And uh, you need to consider, you know, just be realistic about things and have a plan and always look for contingencies. And, you know, 
don't be arrogant. We all have to really take a big dose of humility to be able to go into these worlds. You know, I've been a CEO before, so I'd like to think I know what I'm doing, but God, being in the food space is totally different than being in the consulting side. And every day I see things that I don't know how to do that if I was trying to do them on my own, I'd fail. Right. Yeah, I mean, don't be an entrepreneur if you're not willing to learn. So uh, I think that's, that's, that's one big advice, but that's very useful. Um, you started off again um, wanting to make a positive impact on the world um, and you first went the nonprofit route and then now have ended up in uh, this industry but still part of this larger movement what are your personal goals um, you know without specifically focusing on ocean hugger foods or um, plant-based solutions what do you want to achieve in uh, in the next uh, few years at a, at a pretty high level what 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 would you consider to be success for you? So if you think about vision and mission, and that's how I work with all my clients to define what they're doing. My vision is a world where no animals are, are used for food or any other material, where uh, the planet is protected from the devastation we're wrecking on it, and where people are healthier than they are now, right? It's a world where we have that utopia. Um, I know that I will not single-handedly accomplish that. So my personal mission is to advance the businesses and products that will have the greatest impact at taking away market share, replacing products that are causing that suffering and that harm. And um, right now I'm doing that through marketing, branding, and now producing and selling foods. And I love what I do every single day, but uh, people often ask me if I had to stop using the doing the work I was doing based on what kind of work I was doing or stop doing it for the cause I care about, what would I choose? And I'd be very sad if I had to walk away from marketing and branding and all these things. Um, but the reason I'm doing it is because of the outcome. And if I thought it was less effective, I wouldn't stay there. I do happen to believe that for my skill sets, for my interests and for my uh, abilities, it is the greatest use of my time. I think that's not true for everybody. Everybody has their own skills and interests. And uh, I will continue to do this as long as it is my most effective way to have that greatest impact. And I am thrilled that every day I'm meeting new people who are applying their skills to that. Mm -hmm. And if you, if things continue the way, are, they, the way they are right now for you, um, what kind of world do you see in 2050? Do you think that utopia you spoke of is something that can happen as soon as the year 2050 or uh, sooner or... Uh... Where are we going to be then? I don't know. I'm, it's terrifying. And I've made a conscious choice. You know, I spent years uh, watching every cruel video and reading every devastating environmental report. And I don't want to be ignorant. But I also have decided that I'm a very, uh, I'm a very sensitive person. Uh, I really care about these issues. And I've decided that my best use of my time without making myself ignorant is to devote myself to putting every penny and every second I've got into doing the best, the, giving it the best chance we've got. Because I don't really know. Um, I certainly hope we have fish in the oceans. Uh, I really hope that we have fewer people dying of preventable disease. And I hope that we don't have these factory farms causing animals to suffer and emitting all these horrible pollutants. Um, all those things I really, really care about. And if, you know, the faster we can get there, the better, and I'm going to do everything I can, but I'm not a scientist and, and I will not give up even if somebody tells me that it can't be done because I, I've heard that. I don't know the answer to that, but 
I'm going to devote myself and our team is devoting ourselves to creating the best world we can as po- as possible. And uh, there are others who are also innovating and we want to work together to make that change. And <laughs> this sounds so devastating. You know, if we go down, I'm not going to go down having been selfish and greedy and not put mm-hmm. uh, fellow humans and animals in the environment first. Um, you know, it's time that we as a species that has this ability and opportunity, I don't mean ability in terms of better intelligence or something, I don't believe in that, but has this opportunity to make a difference, uh, puts, makes that a priority. Yeah. And I know you started off uh, talking about why you decided that um, informing people, educating people was not enough and you felt like uh, it probably wasn't even the most effective um, and that's why you ended up going down the path that you are on right now, which is focusing on solutions and focusing on products and spreading those ideas and getting more people to try uh, more sustainable plant-based foods. But, you know, the I think the, the, the thing that's really going to help us is the combination of both. As people learn more about this devastation, as more people wake up to the things that you probably woke up to years ago and I definitely woke up to as recently as seven years ago when I said, wait a minute, this, this, is, this is insane. We can't feed the world. We can't support our ecosystems if we continue like this. So the difference today is when people wake up, now they have an answer, a solution. They walk into a grocery store and they can make a choice. Um, and it doesn't have to be one um, that is uh, compromising on uh, taste, convenience, or price. And I think uh, that's the the world that you are definitely part of and making happen. So thank you for doing the work that you do. And uh, thank you so much, David, for spending this time with us today. This has been uh, a lot of fun and very insightful. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.